Hi guys and welcome back to another true crime and makeup time video. If you're new here, my name is Zara and I post a new true crime video every single week. So if you love makeup and you love true crime, definitely hit that like button, hit that notification post bell button so you don't miss another video. And I would love it if you would subscribe guys. It would mean so much to me. How have you guys been? Don't you feel like 2023 is just flying? It's flying. It's flying away. And I'm just not ready for it to be done. Not makes me really sad. And just a little side note, because I want to complain. Let me complain. I bit my tongue last night at dinner. And oh my God, the pain, the pain I'm in. I don't even know how I'm like talking right now. I feel like I can't say tease, like tea, tea. So today might be a little bit of a struggle. We'll see. But today's case was requested by Vivian. And thank you so much for requesting this case. But oh my gosh, what a case. It's about a horrific, senseless murder committed by this killer couple, Carla and Danny. And it's just the way that they even committed this crime is crazy. But it does have a little twist at the end. But speaking of killers, I wanted to let you guys know that today's video is sponsored by Hunt a Killer. And Hunt a Killer is a murder mystery problem solving challenging game where you examine and solve clues. We'll get into it later, but it's so much fun. So let's get into it and talk about the main protagonist in this case. And her name is Carla Faye Tucker. Carla Faye Tucker was born on November 18th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. Carla's parents were Larry and Caroline, and she had two older sisters, Kathy Lynn and Carrie Ann. And her sisters were just a couple years older than her. So one was two years older than her and one was one year older than her. Her father worked as a longshore man and her mom at first was just was a housewife, but then she turned into a groupie who began abusing drugs. But before this, Carla just remembers they were always this picture perfect family. They just grew up as a really tight family unit. They lived in a middle class neighborhood and they even had like a cottage in Brazonia, Texas, which served as their holiday home. They would water ski and fish over there, but that picture-perfect family lifestyle or moment didn't last very long. And this was due to her parents. They fought a lot. They had a lot of infidelity and trust issues, and they separated several times. And then when Carla was around 10 years old, they officially divorced. Now, this meant Carla's life quickly went from middle class to troubled. This was also the time that Carla learned that she was conceived and born due to an affair that her mother had with another man. Now, this also confirmed a fear of Carla's that she always had. She always felt like she looked different to her sisters. Her sisters had blonde hair and blue eyes, and Carla was here with dark brown hair and dark eyes. And it just unlocked something in her. Now, Carla's father, he always saw Carla as his own, even when he found out that she really wasn't. And he treated always Carla like his own daughter. And he actually went and physically gained custody of all three girls in the divorce. But Carla would never really see herself as a Tucker anymore. She 
just didn't feel like she truly was because it was the three of them, right, who really were genetically related and then her. And because of this, she always just preferred to be with her mom. When she was 10, she caught her sisters smoking weed. So she goes, I'm going to tell on you. And then they offer her some. So she starts smoking some. And now they say, well, you can't tell on us because you're also doing it. Which at first I was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, the older sisters, you know, they were smoking weed. But then I'm like, hold on. They're only like a couple years older than her. So they began smoking weed at like 11 and 12, which that's so young. So their father got custody of them because the mother was out here abusing drugs. She was a groupie. But even though he had custody of them, he couldn't really control or discipline these girls. And he never treated any of the three girls differently. But because of this and because of the people they hung around, by the age of 11, Carla began injecting herself with heroin. And this was obviously due to seeing her older sisters do it. And also the people that her older sisters would hang around with. All of these people would just be involved in drugs. And of course, Carla wanted to be part of it too. Now, most of the people that Carla and her sisters hung around with were bikers. They were from this local gang called the Benditos. And they were supplying the drugs. They had people around them that were all doing similar things and wasn't a good place to be for an 11 year old I mean she's so young they were known to party hard take a lot of drugs and have a lot of sexual activity by the age of 12 Carla was having sex she lost her virginity to this biker who offered her drugs and then they had an entanglement and now that I think about it if he was a biker right wasn't he most likely much older than her? So this is technically statutory rape. Now at this point, Carla's dad is an overworked single father and he couldn't, he just couldn't really keep his daughters in line. So Carla, she drops out of school at the age of 14 and goes to live with her mom. By that time, Carolyn was living in an apartment and was supporting herself as a prostitute and a call girl. and. Carla had little to no adult supervision at her mom's place. Now, Carla wanted to be just like her mother. So when she was 14, she followed her mother into prostitution. Carla stated she did this because she wanted her mom to be proud of her. Now, Carla would state that her mom and her, they would share drugs like you would share a lipstick. And they would travel all over because her mom was a groupie. So they would just follow rock bands on concert tours. When she was 16, Carla met a man named Stephen Griffith and they would fall in love very quickly and get married very quickly. But their relationship was very unstable from the very start. They fist fought a lot and Carla states she had never had a man hit her as hard as Stephen had hit her. Now, the two of them, they also drank and did drugs together and Stephen would say that there was never a woman more beautiful than Carla, especially when she wasn't high or on drugs. They also drank and did drugs together, but Stephen would say that Carla was extremely charismatic and beautiful even when she was high or drinking. And that marriage ended as quickly as it began. Then on Christmas Eve 1979, when Carla was 20, 
her mom, she dies from a drug overdose. And this was extremely, extremely difficult for Carla because she truly believed that her mom was the only one that really loved her. Carla was in her early 20s when she returned back to spending her time with the biker biker crowd. And it was during this period she met and became close to a woman named Sean Dean. Now, Sean Dean was married to Jerry Lynn Dean, and he was a cable network installer. And then in 1981, Sean would introduce Carla to a man named Daniel Ryan Garrett, and he was a 37-year-old Vietnam vet. Danny and Carla, they quickly started dating, but the relationship between Carla and her best friend's husband, Jerry, was just rocky from the start. Sean and Carla were extremely close, and they were also roommates at one point, which I'm like if she was married, but anyway, they were extremely close. And the relationship between Carla and Jerry was just turbulent. And over the next two years of their relationship, the animosity between the two of them just increased. On June 11th, 1983, oh my God, this is so hard to do and tell you guys. But on June 11th, 1983, Carla and her friends decided to throw her sister, it was her sister's birthday, throw her sister a big birthday bash that would last all weekend from Friday to Sunday. So their way of partying was to sit around the house, shoot heroin, smoke cocaine, and consume a bunch of other illegal drugs. Now, during the party, the topic of Sean and Jerry's marriage came up and Sean comes and tells them that her and Jerry Jerry had broken up and she comes to the party and she has bruises all over her face, which looked like it resulted in a fight with Jerry. Carla was not okay with this. She was super protective of Sean and she wanted to go and confront Jerry. She never liked Jerry. He always got under his skin. He would do annoying things like park his bike like right in her living room. He would pick on her. And this one, I don't think is really okay, but he destroyed the only photo Carla had of her mother. And I was like, that's not really, um, like, that's not a funny thing. That's kind of serious, you know? And he destroyed this only photo of Carla's mother by stabbing it with a butcher knife. It was then while she was high on drugs, sleep deprived, talking about these old grudges she had with Jerry, that Carla and Danny decided to go on over to Jerry's house and steal his motorcycle and anything else they could grab from him. Now, the reason they wanted to do this was to teach Jerry a lesson for treating Sean the way he did. But Carla also had her ulterior motives. She wanted to get back at him for all the annoying things he had done to her over this course of their friendship. So then midway through this bash or nearly at the end on Sunday, 13th June, Carla drives to drop off Danny at his job where he worked as a bartender, high as a kite, mind you. And then Carla goes to her job. She goes to the street corner that was known to be easy and easy to pick up guys. Then later on that night, after they finished, they both met up once again and resumed their conversations about how much they hated Danny. Then Danny, who I don't know how long, like I've never done drugs like that. So I don't know how long that lasts, but he then says, Hey, I have an idea. Let's go get Jerry now. 
They felt like right then and there was the perfect time to get Jerry back. So they call and tell Sean about their plan. And even Sean was like, yeah, it's a good idea. So she tells them, good luck on your little robbing spree on my husband. So Carla and Danny, they then decide to ask one more person to help them. And this man's name was James LeBrand. So they change out of their clothes. They change into black clothing. They grab a shotgun and a 38 caliber pistol. And now they were ready to teach Jerry a lesson. But these weapons that they were carrying with them was not to use on Jerry. It was for their own protection. So at about 3 a.m. on Monday, June 14th, 1983, while they were high on methadone, Valium, heroin, marijuana, tequila, and some other drugs, just a whole cocktail. Danny and Carla silently entered Jerry's apartment using the keys they had taken from Sean, while James, he went looking outside the apartment for Jerry's blue El Camino car. So they were just going through his apartment and his apartment was essentially like a garage workshop because it just had motor parts, car parts, bike parts everywhere. So Danny and Carla were just taking whatever they could until they heard a noise. Then they look over down the hallway and they see the bedroom light is now on. Someone had turned on the lights. Then Jerry calls out, who's there? Jerry was in his bedroom and he woke up to the noise. I mean, moving car parts and motor parts is probably not a silent job. Danny and Carla immediately went on the attack. And I'm guessing they did so because they didn't know what else to do. This part is kind of unclear, but what I understood and what I gather is that Carla and Danny run into Jerry's bedroom. Carla jumps on top of Jerry and in a struggle to try to get him off her, he grabs Carla. And then in reaction to that, Danny grabs a hammer off the floor that he found. And he just starts bludgeoning Jerry on the back of the head. Jerry was apparently putting up a fight, begging for his life. Danny, after doing this, then leaves the bedroom to go back to the front to continue stealing more motor parts. Carla stayed behind in the bedroom and Jerry at this point was making gurgling sounds, which made Carla uncomfortable. I mean, keep in mind, she was extremely drugged out. Carla then sees a three foot long, heavy pickaxe leaning against the wall. She grabs it, picks it up and starts striking Jerry with it. As she was doing so, she was taking out all her past feelings and anger towards him. Carla killed Jerry with a fatal strike to his chest. The lights were now on at this point and Carla, she looks over to the wall area and she sees some movement under some blankets. So then she realizes there's someone in the room, a witness. And then they find out it's a woman hiding. Now, Jerry had met this woman earlier that night at another party. Her name was Deborah Thornton. She was 32 years old. And Deborah, she had actually had a fight with her husband earlier on that day. And she went to this party to just blow off some steam. And she met Jerry at this party and she decided that she was going to come home with him. She was terrified. And I mean, talk about wrong place at the wrong time. Now, hyped up on drugs and on the murder 
of Jerry, Carla once again picks up that pickaxe and starts attacking Deborah and raining numerous blows down onto her body. Carla apparently yelled, yuck, but at the same time, delighted in the sensation. Danny then threw a blanket over Deborah's head and then he dared Carla to hit the target while she was blindfolded. He stated, like a piñata. Carla then went and attacked Jerry with 20 more blows. And then this part's a bit unclear, but it's believed that Danny also took some turns attacking the two of them with the pickaxe. But then Carla was the one to finally deliver the blow into Deborah. And she left the pickaxe embedded in Deborah's heart. Now, James, remember James, he was outside looking for the blue El Camino. So he comes back into the apartment room just as this is happening. And he sees Carla attacking Jerry and Deborah. And Carla is smiling as she's doing so. James was terrified and he ran away. And then Carla and Danny, they stole some of Jerry's money before they left his apartment. James apparently would later meet up with them to help get rid of Jerry's car. Jerry and Deborah's body was discovered that morning by one of Jerry's co-workers who was actually supposed to come over and go to work with him. His name was Gregory Traver and he walks into Jerry's apartment because he saw the door was partially open and he calls out Jerry's name, but he didn't get a response from anyone. So he kept going inside and that's when he found Jerry and Deborah's bodies covered in blood in the bedroom. The police were then called with it now being a crime scene and the killer or killers were on the loose. The police were now called. It was a crime scene with the killer or killers on the loose and the hunt was on. Speaking of hunting a killer, I wanted to thank today's sponsor, Hunter Killer. Hunter Killer, if you don't already know, is a murder mystery subscription based service where each game presents you with a different crime to solve. It is so much fun. You get presented with all this evidence and then you have to figure out the means, the motive and the opportunity that the killer has to commit this crime. What I love is that you can choose each game depending on their level of difficulty or how long you want to spend on each game. You can get premium and single box cases. You can get multi-part box set cases or you can choose to subscribe to a plan. If you're into true crime, and I'm guessing some of you are, you will love Hunter Killer. But also if you love a challenge, problem solving, or game night. So I played the death at a dive bar game last Saturday night at my house with some friends. And I chose the medium level difficulty thinking like it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be kind of easy. And with how many people we had, I was sure it was going to be pretty easy to solve. But it was actually pretty challenging, but in a good way. You know those games that you can play and you solve it in like two seconds and you're like, no, this was not like that. We had so much fun trying to find the killer. We got to examine real physical clues. We literally cracked open codes, solved puzzles, learned the backstories to each suspect, how it relates to the victim. You feel like a legit detective or a lawyer. So if you're bored of board games or looking to have a screen-free family game night or Hell, if you want to play alone, you will love Hunter Killer. So click on the link below in my description box and use code ZARAV for 10% off your order of immersive murder mystery games today.
So thank you to Hunter Killer for sponsoring today's video, but thank you so much to you, my beautiful friends, because without you, I wouldn't be doing this. Okay, back into it. This is the finished look. In the room, police also discovered just random boxes of stuff like garden tools and dirty clothes just laying around. Police also found that in addition to Jerry's motorcycle and blue El Camino missing, Deborah and Jerry's wallets were also missing. The autopsies showed the extremely violent nature of these crimes. Jerry had blunt force trauma to the head resulting in a skull fracture and multiple stab wounds, multiple. Deborah had also been subjected to a multitude of stab wounds as well as blunt force trauma to her back. In all, both victims had more than 20 injuries that were consistent with stabbing. The pickaxe that was used was recovered at the scene. Carla left it there. And the police believed that this was the weapon that Jerry and Deborah were killed with. Now, it didn't take long for officers to connect the killers to the bodies. Cops learned who they would associate with and who they frequented with and just started asking a bunch of questions. Now, everyone at that party learned about what Carla and Danny had done because they bragged about it. Carla and Danny remembered very little about the crime, but it was no big deal to them. That night, they watched TV as the murder was being reported on the news, and they just seemed unconcerned about the families of the victims. And I mean, the people that they bragged to, I mean, are they just all really high or like, what the hell's going on? Why didn't they report them to the police? Maybe they didn't believe it was true. What is going on? But I mean... Bitches be crazy. And if you're high on drugs, then we don't know what to believe. Now, when the police started getting pissed off because they were like, tell us what the hell happened. That's when everyone started to talk. Hell, anyone and everyone talked. Danny's brother talked. Carrie, her sister, talked. Sean talked. Even James LeBrant, who was part of it, talked. Now, he said he hadn't been a part of it. He was supposed to just be a part of a burglary. And then Danny's brother, Douglas, was talked into wearing a wire by the police. So then he then goes and meets up with Carla, Danny, James, and then another friend, Ronnie, that was there. And he meets up with them and he has a two hour long conversation with them. And in this conversation, they're just openly talking about the murders. Now, one of the most famous parts of this case, and apart from the fact that pickaxes were used, is that on the police wiretap, Carla was recorded saying that each time she struck the victims with the pickaxe each time she delivered a blow to the victims. She had an orgasm. And I mean, that's not even funny at all. If she was trying to be funny, it's the most sickest thing. Like if that is true, she really did have it. Like, dang, sexual things, sexual, sexual things are just wild. Like who, 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 what? So after nearly a month of investigating this crime, the police were ready. On 20th July, 1983, as he left work to go home, Danny was arrested. Carla was arrested that same day. And then randomly, this third suspect, Albert Sheenan, was also arrested. But then he was released because he had nothing to do with the murders, but he did testify against Carla and Danny. Carla and Danny were tried separately. Carla went to trial on April 11th, 1984, and she sat in front of a jury consisting of eight women, four men, and a female judge presided over her case. 
Carla pled not guilty and she was being tried for both murders of Jerry and Deborah. Danny pleaded not guilty and was only being tried for Jerry's murder. But then Carla testified against Danny and then she no longer was being tried for Deborah's murder, but then neither was Danny. So that was, that was weird. What about Deborah? So at Carla's trial, the prosecution presented all the evidence, including that infamous tape where she stated that she climaxed every single time she stabbed one of the victims and the defense called no witnesses. I mean, really, what could the defense really do? That defense lawyer was probably like, you bragged about it. You dug your own grave. It took this jury only 70 minutes to find Carla guilty. Then when they were determining the sentencing, the defense calls a psychiatrist who had interviewed Carla and Carla had told the psychiatrist that she had been taking drugs since the age of nine and shooting heroin at the age of 10, that she had been addicted to heroin at 10. This psychiatrist testified that Carla had not slept in three days. She had been taking a cocktail of drugs, drinking tequila on the night that the murders took place, that this was Carla's state of mind. And the psychiatrist also goes on to say that she doesn't believe that Carla derived any sexual pleasure from the killings, despite her claiming to her friends that she did. She found it unlikely that Carla had ever received any sexual satisfaction, in fact. So then Carla takes the stand in her defense and she gives the court her version of events. She states that she did not even feel like the killings were real. She didn't see any bodies. She didn't see any blood. After deliberating for nearly three hours on April 25th, 1984, the jury recommended that Carla be sentenced to death by lethal injection. She was 24 years old and the death sentence was not usually given to female offenders. The trial had made the news, but Carla's sentence had made headlines. Danny was also sentenced to death for the murder of Jerry. Now the trial ended nearly a year after the crimes took place, but during that period, Carla had become a whole new woman. The Carla who testified in court was a completely different woman to who had testified in court in her defense. While awaiting her trial, Carla had grabbed one of the Bibles from her prison and had begun reading it in her jail cell. Carla made a statement saying, I didn't know what I was reading. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of my cell floor on my knees. I was just asking God to forgive me. Carla became a Christian in October 1983, four months after killing Jerry and Deborah. Now, Carla states she was in her right mind for the first time in years. She found Christ and she put herself through good works, helping people. Carla spent the next few years on death row at the Mountain View Unit in Gatesville, and she made multiple attempts for clemency, but they were all rejected. Her case drew a lot of attention from people all over, mainly because not a lot of women were given as a death sentence. And also due to the fact that she was just this new dramatic Christian, completely different to a murderer that had committed two murders in a horrific way. Many Christian leaders, including Pat Johnson, Pope John Paul II, rallied 
around Carla. They were trying to get her death sentence repealed. She had appealed for clemency, saying she had been on drugs at the time that the murder took place and she would never have committed this murder had she had been sober. She also stated that Christ had changed her and she made a statement saying, I can promise you this, if you commute my sentence to life, I will continue for the rest of my life in this earth to reach out to others to make a positive difference in their lives. In 1995, she married her prison minister, Reverend Dana Brown, and they got married in a Christian ceremony inside the prison, but their relationship consisted of being separated the entire time through the plexiglass windows. In 1998, she wrote a letter to George W. Bush and the Texas Board of Pardons and Patrol, and she wrote, when I share that I was out of it on drugs the night I brutally murdered two people, I fully realize that I made the choice to do those drugs. Had I chosen not to do drugs, two people would still be alive today. But I did choose to do drugs, and I did lose it, and two people are dead because of me. Now, this is what I find crazy about this case, because she got support from so many important leaders, okay? She got support from American politicians, including Pat Robertson, Newt Gingrich, the Italian Prime Minister, Bianca Jaggers, Mick Jaggers' ex-wife, uh, and even Ronald Carlson, Deborah's brother, Deborah, the victim's brother, which to me, I'm like, dang, the amount of strength that would have taken him to support her, his sister's killer, all her appeals were rejected. Carla also had demonstrations and vigils, which attracted hundreds, hundreds of protesters. The typical death row criminal only attracts like a handful of people. Now, George W. Bush, he refused to reduce her death sentence to life in prison, and he also rejected her 11th hour appeal. Because it was so publicized, he made a statement. He said her case had been thoroughly reviewed, and I have concluded judgments about the heart and soul of an individual on death row. I believe they are best left to a higher authority. So yeah, he was just like, nah fam, you, you gonna die. On her final day on 3rd February 1998, Carla, she refused breakfast in her cell and she had told the guards that she was at peace. She wrote a letter and she had two visits. She was allowed half an hour to be with her husband, Dana. Sometime after 6.20pm, she puts on a fresh new white prison uniform she gets down on the gurney and she is strapped in. Her arms were strapped to the sideboards and a catheter was inserted into her veins. She was wheeled into the execution chamber at around 6.35 p.m. She was asked if she had any last words and she did. She stated, Yes, sir, I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She then looked at her husband who was watching and she stated, baby, I love you. Everyone has been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I'm going to be face to face with Jesus now. She then goes on to thank the warden. She says, warden baguette, thank all of you so much. You have been so good to me. I love all of you very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. She closed her eyes. She seemed to mutter a silent prayer. And the three drugs, sodium, thiopental, pancuronium, bromide, and potassium 
chloride began to be injected at 6.37 p.m. Within two minutes, witnesses heard Carla take a deep breath and a groan. And that was that. Carla was pronounced dead eight minutes later at 6.45 p.m. Her eyes remained open and she was staring at the ceiling. Carla was the first woman to be executed in Texas since 1863. Now, Deborah's husband, the victim Deborah, her husband, was Richard, and he, along with his kids, witnessed this execution, and he stated, I don't believe in her Christianity. I don't believe in her conversion. He believed that Carla had staged the whole thing. Now, Daniel Garrett, he died on death row prior to his execution from liver failure in 1993. What do you guys think? Can redemption be real? If so, then what? Many of Carla's supporters around the world, they believed that Carla had been saved and that her life should have been spared. But does that belief translate to a courtroom? Should her life have been spared? Why her and not Danny? Because he didn't convert to Christianity? Even if he did, would he have received the same response? Whether you're for or against capital punishment, what I find weird is why is it okay to put a man on death row but not a woman? If the death penalty exists, shouldn't it be equal to all humans? It should not be based on race, sex, or social standing, right? Is that justice? If Kala was a man who became a devout Christian, would it garner the same support from that many people around the world? Are women not as responsible for their crimes as men are? The amount of blogs and pages of support that came up for Carla as I was researching this case blew my mind. I mean, did we forget the act of murder she committed? The the horrific act? I mean, Carla herself says she would not have committed these crimes had she not been on drugs. But again, she chose to take those drugs. She injected them. She put them into her mouth. Carla on her own account was guilty of murder. Okay, so she wasn't the same person anymore. Was that purely due to the fact she was in jail and had no access to drugs? No access to much and she found something to do in her spare time? In no way am I saying she wasn't converted or became religious. I think that's great, but I feel like if she was forgiven and spared, her life spared for committing these acts, I feel like a dangerous wheel would have been set into motion. People would claim religion as their excuse for crimes committed after the fact. Imagine how the victim's families would feel, do feel. I don't know. I found this case extremely strange. The amount of sympathy and support a killer got, you know what I mean? Like, what do you guys think? I understand you change, but you don't, I mean, then everyone's going to do horrible crimes and then be like, well, I'm saved now. Religion saved me. It's just a very sensitive and, um, yeah, I feel like dangerous, dangerous situation to put into the law. You know, I feel like Carla was sentenced to death. That's what the jury gave her. And that was the price she had to pay for the crime she committed, the crimes, the two murders, Deborah and Jerry. Thank you guys so much for watching. Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below and I will see you in the next one. Besitos. Bye.